When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 87. An heir and a spare. Llewellyn ap Yorworth sat atop the mountain, or at least the shadows of Snowdonia, having achieved most of his dreams. By 1216, he had worked to create a link into his neighbors, either by victories or convenient marriages to the marcher lords and the princes of Wales. He continued to demonstrate his power on the field of battle and continued to appear unstoppable. John, King John, was now dead. His son, Henry III, was now king, but he was a child, and his advisors were not able to achieve the same dominance over Wales that earlier kings had done. Left to their own devices, the marcher lords came up second and joined in Llewellyn's rebellion. They, for the most part, were making peace with him rather than fighting him. In 1218, following the end of the resistance of the barons of England, Llewellyn came to terms with the peace of Worcester. He was allowed to retain all he took and held in both South Powys and areas around the south in Carmarthen and Cardigan. And in fact, he held in trust both castles and lands for the descendants of these areas who he was supposed to give them back to once they got of age. In the case of Carmarthen and Cardigan castles, they were actually the kings. He and his allies were forgiven by the church and brought back into the fold of God as they would see it. And in other words, Llewellyn was supreme. Now, of course, during this rebellion, he had been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church, so this is a big step in an era when the church had such dominance in the way of thinking and attitudes of people, this would have been an important piece of the puzzle. During the next five years, Llewellyn solidified his eastern border by marrying his daughter Helen to the nephew of the Earl of Chester, Ranoff. This uh, particular fellow was known by the name of John the Scot. He was an important piece to the protection of the eastern half of Gwynedd's kingdom with them on side and that area kind of covered. It kept them from being a problem and they would be allies to Llewellyn for a very long time. And however, even if he'd healed one side, he would have issues with the Earl of Pembroke William Marshall II, unlike his northern neighbor, was not a fan of this particular king and his uh, ideas for power, and he stood against him, typically. Disagreements in 1220 saw Llewellyn 
invade the southwest, burning castles in Narbeth and in Whiston, and the town of Haverford West suffered from him as well. He ended up basically being bought off at times. Uh, obviously, did not Llewellyn did not try to keep these areas. Rather, he was just pillaging them, and eventually was uh, able to be bought off by Pembroke, who sent him a hundred pounds to go away, effectively. Uh, Marshall was then left wanting as he appealed to the king, but with the king in his minority and the uh, advisors not really interested, it fell on deaf ears. During 1223, Marshall actually invaded the northern half of South Wales and started to move up against Cardigan and Carmarthen to try and seize lands that were hit by right his at that point at least in the, his mind at this particular moment he caught Llewellyn unawares because Llewellyn was busy in Shropshire seizing the lands of Kinnerley and Whittington but because of these invasions he ended up losing Cardigan and Camarthen to to Marshall Llewellyn sent his firstborn son, Griffith, to deal with the Earl, and mostly to keep him from making more gains to the north. Griffith was the uh, bastard son. He was not the heir to the throne, at least according to Llewellyn. But he was an important part of his ability to fight back against the English and was used as a military leader and was well-respected enough to be able to lead Llewellyn's southern battles. This becomes important, of course, because Griffith will also see himself within Welsh law to be the proper heir to the throne, and it will become a problem for everyone involved at that point. The English of uh, previous eras had been divided against Llewellyn. They hadn't been a united force. There had been marcher lords that had fought for him. There was the Welsh lords that fought for him, and quite often the English king and his subjects weren't always on the same page and weren't really able to lead a charge against him, other than that one point when John almost took Gwyneth completely and forced Llewellyn into a bad negotiation. This time around, Marshall was able to gain more trust and gain more people to help him, and because of this, Llewellyn was in a lot more trouble. On October 8th, 1223, he lost a number of captured territories, but his allies in the south finally held their own lands, which they had lost to Marshall from the south. And that negotiation became important because this allowed uh, Llewellyn to finally gain some peace, uh, to avoid having to fight any more wars with the English, and particularly Marshall, who was such a, apparently a thorn in his side. And until 1228, this seemed to create that moment where he was able to accomplish a lot of things. Specifically, Joan, his wife, who had been for many years his closest political ally in the fight with the English, she was a key person to make and negotiate treaties. She was a part of those that went to her father, King John, to try and negotiate a peace between her husband and him. Uh, she had been a critical help to him and became considered an important lady of Wales, if we were to be honest. So for someone who was, you know, born of Norman nobility, who had been intertwined with the Plantagenets to be now suddenly a key figure in the Welsh 
ruling families and the Welsh structure is an interesting dynamic in and of itself. But I think it is interesting to look at that and look at her contributions. She definitely was a very strong-minded and very well-beloved lady. And so much so that we know that Llewellyn forgave her a lot of things that he might not have forgiven others. And we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. But the other thing is, too, is she seems to have been very clever, very much... uh, an equal to her husband and certainly an equal to her her brother, Henry, and to her father, enough so that she could make peace deals, she negotiated with them, she appealed to them, she was quite often used as sort of the go-between, and because of that, I think she has a significant portion of how, why this kingdom was so successful and why Gwyneth was able to survive for so long. You know, her achievements cannot be fully described because, of course, we don't get that portion of history. We don't get a really great understanding of the things she did and didn't do. But I would say that it's it's recognizable that she had a lot of influence and that she continued to be an assistant and a negotiating partner. And because of this, I think this led to her receiving... Uh, notifications from her erstwhile brother or stepbrother in this case as he henry uh acknowledged that she was a legal heir to the throne that she or at least uh, a legal descendant rather than a bastard and so she achieved that which i think in in a way this legitimizing of her legacy made it easier for Llewellyn to go back to Henry and try and get favor for his son, the legally and legitimately born son David, who he had decided was the heir to his throne. He had fully made that decision by this point. And so one of the things that he did was he spoke to Henry and tried to convince his government that David should be recognized as the heir to Gwyneth and not Griffith, who, to be fair to Griffith, under Welsh law, that would not go and that would not be acceptable. Quite typically, as we've seen with Welsh law, everybody inherits and then it becomes, you know, who survives that fight. It becomes very Games of Thrones, if you wanted to argue from that perspective. Things get a little chaotic as soon as that all comes about. And we'll talk some more in depth about all of this. But nonetheless, it's an important point for them. And that need for her to be recognized and for David to be recognized is incredibly important. And as we said, they needed to have the English primogenitor or, you know, the the knowledge that the firstborn son legitimately should inherit because that would make it easier for him to argue things under English law, if not necessarily under Welsh law. If the king recognizes David, it would also set Gwyneth up as the prime Welsh kingdom. It would stop the eventual factionalization of various groups behind different sons and keep strong the Welsh predominance that Llewellyn had built in Gwyneth over other native rulers and a few of the marcher lords. 
It was a tall order, which was fraught with a number of dangers, not least of which because the English monarchy desired to keep the Welsh divided and malleable. And the idea of trying to gain authority over them in this way would be something of a concern for the English because for them, having the Welsh divided, fighting, being able to pick the sides they wanted to pick becomes incredibly important to them because that keeps the Welsh from being able to do what the Scottish and the Irish were able to do, which is unite against them, and specifically with the Scottish to ally themselves with other countries and start to push back and become a thorn in the side of their governments. And that was a big part of why I think the English spent a lot of time trying to keep the Welsh from uniting and picking away at their territory because legitimately it would keep them out of that ability and keep them from being able to unite under one ruler and argue that they needed to be independent, which again is something the English did definitely not want. By 1229, Henry had accepted the homage of David, acknowledging his primogenitor and his inheritance, which I think was a key item and an important one. In 1230, Llewellyn was able to arrange the marriage between David and Isabella de Broes, the daughter of William, who was the son of Reginald, uh, an important member and a significant person in the Marcher Lords, and set yet another relationship. And you can see that what Llewellyn is doing with interrelated relationship buildings through marriage and through marriage alliances, he's creating not only protection for himself, which he did in the past, but he's also setting the stage for his son to try and protect him from the obvious problems that will come about once Llewellyn is dead. Llewellyn's seen this story before. I mean, we've talked about this quite often in Welsh history. The leader of the Welsh at the time when the Welsh are in their brief moments united runs into trouble on the minute he passes away because his son's aren't considered the legitimate heirs of his kingdom. They aren't necessarily even one son that can be picked apart as the actual heir. And largely what this leads to is then fractionalization, factionalization, and then divisions even amongst within the kingdoms and the cantrips over who should be the heir, who should be the legitimate king, and basically we have killing sprees that then go on. And as we mentioned before, that all goes to the advantage of the English and certainly not something that the Welsh need or want. However, things would start to become problematic for Llewellyn. Around the time that we have uh, Llewellyn trying to work with Henry, though, we find other issues coming up. In fact, with Griffith, his problems with Griffith grow. Griffith, of course, had been made a war leader, somebody important to the uh, throne in the way he would lead armies. But all of a sudden now, as of 1228, he was a liability, not a help. So it was in this point that Llewellyn imprisoned him, and he remained there until 1234, so almost six years effectively in prison and mostly it appears that this was done to keep Griffith out of the way out of sight out of mind and to help David receive the English recognition and so that Griffith couldn't assemble people to fight against this likely that was a large part of it and by the end of that this 
I mean, let's be honest, it's in all likelihood created more problems for Llewellyn than he probably thought and bargained for. It created issues for him because Griffith is going to have supporters, especially as a war leader, you'd think he'd have armies or at least some soldiers that would be on his side, and certainly some of the nobility in Wales would be on his side. So already you've got that problem, and it's hard to say whether or not this played into the issue of why he was imprisoned as long as he was, but certainly it appears like it was done specifically to kind of tuck him away while they tried to negotiate with Henry to get David recognized to allow that whole thing to begin appropriately and acknowledging really that Griffith has as much right to the throne as David does under Welsh law. Unfortunately for Llewellyn, things didn't work out exactly the way he'd hoped in a divisive battle with uh, a few of the marcher lords. He ended up capturing William de Brosse, his erstwhile uh, brother-in-law to his son and held him captive for some months. And during this time, uh, this is when Llewellyn used that to that imprisonment to hold him hostage to try and get Isabella uh, given to David. So in a way, I guess that was the point. But in the consequence of that, uh, there were problems because Llewellyn would discover William in a highly, as as quoted by uh, by Carrie Mond, she says that he found William in a highly compromising set of circumstances with Joanna, his queen. And because of that, Joanna was banished from court for a time. But more importantly, on May 2nd, 1230, William was hanged for adultery. And that kind of thing shows that there was obviously problems with Joan that this young man, because I had have to assume he was young, uh, had built a relationship with her that was deemed inappropriate by Llewellyn. But even after that, you can tell that while the relationship fractured at that point, it wasn't completely broken between Joan and Llewellyn. Eventually, she gets back into his... I mean, I hate to say good graces, but that's kind of what it was. By 1231, she was restored to her position and restored in favor with the court. Um, and this was about the time when, again, Llewellyn is trying to deal with some of the marcher lords, specifically Herbert de Biru, um, and trying to stop their ambitions and capture some more of their territory in the Brecon area and Radnor so, again, this is trying to deal with stuff in Glamorgan, in Carleon, in Neath, in Kidwelly, uh, a number of other places trying to effectively push forward his agenda, which is to become the king of all of Wales and eventually enforce and push that the English actually recognize him as such and recognize his error as such, which I think is an important point for Llewellyn at this stage. Llewellyn at this stage is 10 years away, nine years away, depending on what year we're talking about from his own passing away. So he's trying desperately to create a legacy that's unbroken and it's one that was acknowledged by the English. And as we all know from later history, that doesn't ever happen. But the reality is, is that Llewellyn can see the writing on the wall and he knows he has to get this done. And he knows that the English tendency is to help and encourage a breaking of that. So you can tell 
that he spent a lot of time trying to deal with that and trying to sort that out. And in fact, throughout most of 1238, Llewellyn's envoys were in negotiation with Henry III, and mostly because Llewellyn was trying to capture a title which he considered to be important, a title that would signify his ruling over Wales pretty much as a whole, but certainly the native parts of Wales. And that title was the Prince of Aberfawr and the Lord of Snowdon, which would then go to David. And it was something that Henry was not fond of, and it would be perceived as a fairly significant act. And realistically, it would set something up that the English did not want. So they never allowed for that, didn't want that to be handed down to David. And even though the attempts were made to try and make it more secure and setting aside all the Welsh lords, trying to get them on board with recognizing David as the king of Gwyneth, or in this case, the prince of what effectively would be Wales, um, there was never enough amongst even the allies that really acknowledged this as a reality and, and wanted this enough to put it in place. And and it's a difficulty that he had right until the end of his life as Stilellan continued to try to push this. Meanwhile, however, uh, Griffith was now in southern Powys uh, and stirring up resentment or at least working with others who resented the Gwyneth power plays and were trying to push his agenda over David's. And so at one point, Griffith was shunted out of Southern Powys and then put into Clean Peninsula, basically given that as his cantriff to control. And hopefully, to, well, as, as the idea goes, is they were hoping to keep him from causing more trouble by limiting the amount of things he had access to. Obviously, the resources in Clean are much less than what's in Powys. You don't have the agricultural reach and you don't have you know, the same type of ability to use things in a medieval era would have been important and useful. So at that point, that was one of the goals. And this, of course, led to Griffith responding much more violently in 1239 and in 1240. Um, but eventually, David tricks him and then imprisons him in Crickheath Castle. So as Llewellyn is reaching the end of his life, in all likelihood is has much less to do with what's going on in his kingdom. David and Griffith are already fighting over who will take charge of the kingdom. And of course, once again, Griffith is captured. Griffith is put into prison and David is protected and set up to be the heir. However, on 11th of April, 1240 at Aberconwy, Llewellyn passes away, and with his death ends the first and probably last real good solid opportunity that Wales had had for probably nearly 200 years to pull away from the English to become their own kingdom in full and really to set up the descendancy so that there isn't this constant push and pull towards the various heirs and to kind of anglicize Welsh law so that this wasn't the same old, same old. I mean, the old ideas and the old ways of the Welsh 
descendancy where everybody gets a piece and then they fight over the scraps is something they didn't want and was something that was seen as actually causing trouble and causing problems for the Welsh. And so this was a desire to try and put an end to that in a way that would be finalized without having to go through a murder spree every time somebody passed away. So for Wales, it's an important step. And unfortunately, it's one that they never really get to because, of course, we're not far away from the end of independence at this stage. We're going to talk a little bit more about the court of Llewellyn next week. But uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for uh, being a part of this podcast. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate your comments, your questions, your concerns. You can always reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, you can always reach me on Twitter at welshhistorypod. And on Facebook, of course, facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast. We'll take you to our page. And uh, I hope you all have a great day. Take care. Goodbye. been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.